DiscerningHearts.com presents The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. Dr. Doran is a board-certified neurosurgeon with over 25 years of experience and is also an ordained permanent deacon and serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He is the author of To Die Well, a Catholic neurosurgeon's guide to the end of life, the book on which this series is based. His writings in bioethics, neurosurgery, and gene therapy for brain disorders have been widely published in national media outlets, academic journals, and neurosurgery textbooks. He is also the co-founder of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon, with Dr. Stephen Doran. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Doran, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm just so excited to be here. I am so grateful for you to bring forward to all of us To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. It's an area that, for many of us, it's we just don't want to go there yet. It's not something we want to think about right now. And yet, it is one of those things that maybe should be present in our minds and in our hearts, because ultimately, it's a destination we're all traveling to, isn't it? Yeah, it's the inevitable end of everyone's life is their death. I mean, it seems self-evident, but so often people just don't think about it, and rarely do they truly contemplate it. So, but yet it's like the old cliche, death and taxes, right? I mean, those, those are the two things that are inevitable in life. And yeah, I just think we ought to be willing to really pray, especially think both, because there's both of those things are necessary as we prepare. And, and, um, but surprisingly few people do. And that's certainly been my experience professionally. I think we need to let the listeners know too, that you're not only just a doctor, but you're also a deacon, husband, father, so many vocational roles that you have to essentially, I don't want to say perform, but live out maybe live out is a better way every day, don't you? Yeah, and, and then keeping life in balance um, requires um, a, a lot of things, especially uh, God's grace and um, a loving, supportive wife to try to keep things all held, not always succeeding, but always willing to lean into the mercy of God and the mercy of my wife and family when, when things get a little bit uh, out of whack. And to die well in the introduction, you begin to tell us your story a beautiful book because the way that it's set up, there are so many stories. You really can't approach this subject, can you, without entering into the real experience? Because if you just stay in the clinical books or the, the basic dogmatic teachings, it remains really in the head and not in our hearts, doesn't it? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, that's one of my hopes with this book is to be able to use story to draw people into concrete realities of what's going on. I've certainly read dozens of medical ethics books, you know, many papers and things like that, and they're all very, very helpful, but um, not terribly accessible and, and tend to be kind of dry. And to, to your point, you know, it becomes uh, still something that's at a distance. And that um, so even the attempts to write about this have not necessarily drawn people more into the mystery of dying. 
and I'm I'm not trying to paint with too broad of a brush. There's some wonderful books that are out there, but that was that was my hope is that um, these stories would draw people into this reality on a more personal basis. You, you do share about your own life, your own experience, and I'm curious what led you to neurosurgery. Oh gosh, Chris, you know I tell people that sometimes you make the right decision for the wrong reasons. I was in um, medical school and I thought I was going to be an internal medicine doctor. I was going to be a be a thinking man, you know, that there's this uh, tension between surgeons and medical doctors and the medical doctors would always accuse the surgeons of being Philistines, you know, they're this, these guys who want to go and cut, 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 you know, and so there was this kind of cliche thing and I was drawn to kind of the more cerebral medicine type of thing. But, but then I had an amazing experience doing uh, general surgery, which is, you know, things like, you know, gallbladders, appendix, things like that. But there still was something um, wasn't, didn't quite pique my interest enough, but I really thought I ended up liking surgery more than I thought it would. And, and then just happened to do a rotation in neurosurgery for two weeks, you know, and had just a wonderful experience. And, and so there's this urgency to decide things in your third year of medical school. Like if you don't know what you got to want to do, you got to figure it out. And so had two weeks of a good experience and okay, you know, talk with Sharon, this sounds pretty good. Let's give it a try. So again, not, not terribly good discernment and you know, thanks be to God, God watched over this because I, it wasn't a great process of discernment. And so, yeah, the, I think it was the right decision, but not for the right reasons necessarily. Well, it was the first steps of a good discernment. You talked it over with your wife. True, very true. Yes, incredibly superior all of this. Yeah, brought that into the conversation. So who knows how God is working even in those little inklings, right? True, absolutely, yeah. I might surprise some of our listeners. And when I was in college, I was a surgical tech. Oh, really? And yeah, and we had the opportunity to work with so many different types of practices, the, the orthopedic, the GI, and the neurosurgeons. We always found them to be the elite because they had the most delicate of instruments where the ortho guys actually had the seers, craftsmen, hammers. But the neurosurgeon has to do things in a very delicate manner, and it is a an area that can be very fascinating and tenuous, can it? I mean, if there is one slip, it can affect someone for their entire life, and that's a lot of pressure. Well, yeah, yeah, Chris. I mean, that's that, that's true in that one of the problems. Not, how would I put this? The weight of that is something that has always been there, but interestingly, as I get older, that weight is weightier. The, the reality that through no ill intent, I can hurt someone. And that that possibility of hurting someone weighs very heavy. I mean, now I'm, it's doesn't happen often. And for the most part, people are restored, um, pain relieved, uh, function restored, all those things. And yet I think like in so many areas, your, your last bad experience is what sticks in your mind. So yeah, I mean, it, it, there it, there's a lot at stake, and I don't mean to overly dramatize it. I mean, I don't want to scare people. You know, feel like oh my gosh, I can't have my neurosurgeon take care of me. But but yeah, that reality does weigh heavy on me, and weighs heavier as time goes on because I think seeing the consequences of both the good things and the unanticipated complications, seeing the reality of that, you know, strikes me at a very deep level. There's a path you can go down, can't you, at a certain point, because you end up seeing so many different patients, so many different situations, that the path either becomes, I'm going to become 
emotionally involved with my patients, essentially compassionating, entering into what they're going through, or it's just too much, I'm going to have to have a boundary and I'm this is my job and this is what I need to do. I'm not trying to say that other physicians who may choose that other path are not good folks and are not caring, but it's a, how do I want to say, it's like Ignatius, it's a, it's a magus, right? It's a more, if you do begin to open that door to compassionate with your patients. Yeah, I mean, it's I can't be a robot, at least I can't be in my own personality. Also keep being mindful that I can only take on so much too as other people's burdens, but it's hard for me to imagine being a physician and being only a technician. And I've I've met, you know, surgeons like that and they're very technically skilled and have good outcomes, but I think they're missing something. And I know the patients are missing something. And that experience can be so much more rich if there is that relationship that's healthy and deep and appropriate boundaries, of course, you know, but but yeah, I think I think physicians who who stay distant, they're missing out. The reason I mention that is because in the book, as you begin to see from the different stories, there are decisions that have to be made. But in a very real way, it's you mentioned it earlier, it's about discernment. You know, it's the Latin, uh, what is it, discernment is discerning, I think it is. It's, it's the setting apart. It's listening deeply, and in this case as a physician, not only listening, but looking deeply and deciding between what is good and what is not good, what is for the better, what is not helpful, and then learning how to dis- separate that and bringing into all of that God's grace. What is God asking that? And that, I think, is a, a very much a challenge, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, neurosurgery is no different than other things in life where there's things that are absolutely clear. Do this, don't do that. You know, that's you know, very straightforward. But like other areas in our life, what to do with a child, what to do with a job, what all sorts of things are, you know, there's there's competing goods and and competing challenges that need to be weighed out and discerned. We don't, in neurosurgery, often have the luxury of a lot of times. Sometimes we do, but often we don't. But there is the need to be able to hold all those things in tension and balance them out as best we can within our our human capabilities, leaning into God's grace. And, and yeah, that's just life in general. And neurosurgery is not necessarily different in that way. Yeah, I, I like the subtitle of the book, as odd as it may sound, the, a Catholic neurosurgeon's guide to the end of life because to be a Catholic is in a very real way for us we're called to be obedient to the guidance the teachings of the church and what I mean by obedient it's that deep listening so in what I see in your book what you've done is exemplified in not just in your book but also in your life this deep listening of not only of what the church is guiding you to, but then what is experienced in the life of that patient. So bringing those two together, especially at one of the most tender moments that can be experienced by an individual and their families, I, I think that's a, that's a very, it's a very delicate place and it needs to be reflected upon, hopefully before you end up having to go through that, right? 
you've kind of prepared yourself. That's why I think the book and what you're bringing forward is so important. Well, Chris, this is why you're so good at what you do, because the, even the phrase deep listening just struck me. I had never thought of it in those terms. And, and, and it's, no, it's true. I mean, those, those words, yeah, I mean, that's a very good way of putting it and one which I will kind of really take to heart because so much of medicine and life in general are decisions and as opposed to listening and discerning. So, so yeah, listening to the patient, listening to what the church says. I like that. I like that a lot. And it's listening to scripture. It's listening, you know, to God's word. It's listening to all that and then putting that all together. Did you even think you were doing that in the beginning when you first started out as a neurosurgeon? Lord have mercy. I wish I would have, you know, and, and, and just because it's so overwhelming, you know, you just keep your head down, get through the day, being bombarded left and right with new situations, new challenges, learning. Um, yeah, I would love to say that I was this deep contemplative person, you know, my training. You know, God's been a huge part of my life has throughout, since a teenager at least, and and even during training, developed a, a daily practice of reading collection of writings like Conversations with God talked a lot about work and those types of things. And I would read that. And uh, yeah, that was a big part of when I was a resident, just kind of encouragement of what's going on at work and things like that. But but then once you show up, it's flat out one thing to the next to the next and still not just doing things, but trying to learn things and trying to technically do things, you know, hold a scalpel or other instruments and interpret films and things like that. So there was no time for discernment or, well, I, let me put it this way. I certainly didn't take time for that. And the thing is, I think as we get older, we find if you're practicing it, hopefully on a daily basis, even just for a few minutes, it becomes something that's a part of your day that in your case, and in maybe in our daily lives, it doesn't necessarily have to take weeks or even days. You're so connected with God at a certain point that it just becomes a part of your mode of operation. Absolutely. No matter what our vocation is, you know, um, and hopefully something that with time and experience, I mean, these things are, 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 are not necessarily innate. It's like prayer. I mean, you would think prayer should be just easy, right? And just pray. Well, yeah, you can do that, but there's also an art to prayer and a time of understanding prayer and growing in prayer. I hate to use the word skill, but there, in a sense, there is a, a deepening that comes with the more you do something, um, the more fruitful it is. And so whether it's prayer, whether it's discernment, I would hope, you know, just I discern better now than I did as a young man in my twenties. You know, I hope I'm on, I hope I'm on a journey towards God and not stagnant or going the other direction. I just know that when, as my little role as a surgical tech all those years ago, as girl in her early twenties, experiencing the tenderness, I keep going back to that word, the tenderness of the situations of people who are coming in to have surgeries, but particularly those who have such a tenuous situation in their lives, which usually required a neurosurgeon. So for example, I would imagine in your role, you're right there on the edge, not maybe some days with those who have chronic pain or back pain or things like that that you have to deal with. But then when it comes to those issues where that center around brain trauma or illness or something like that, every week, I would imagine you've had to see and encounter those kind of situations. 
Yeah, I mean, it's part of that's what you do as a neurosurgeon and and um, engage in situations that are life changing for people, and they're confronted with a situation uh, where their life will never be the same, and their life may end. I mean, there's the different areas of medicine have their own challenges, but there's a few neurosurgery being one of them where that's just what you do. And and the problem is you don't want to turn it into, well, I just do this. You know, that's part of my daily routine, you know, confronting death or disability or and become cavalier about it. And and I think that's the particular challenge, but also the particular thing I like about it especially is that the opportunity to be present with people at a very important time in their life. I mean, a, a very, um, especially during death, a very holy time in their life. That's a really privileged place to be. And I never, ever want to take that lightly and recognize that as hard as it can be, it's also a blessing and a privilege to be present with people during that time. We'll return to the final journey with Dr. Stephen Doran in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help discerning hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to The Final Journey with Dr. Stephen Doran. You talk about in the book a very pivotal experience when you share about your father-in-law. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, So my wife, Sharon, grew up in this family that I just loved to be around, just warm, affectionate, you know, 
spend all my time around their kitchen table and and just really we dated for you know quite a few years before we got married because we were very young still in college and really came to know her family in a very deep way and I felt exceptionally loved by them and and by my own family too of course but and her father Mike was this I don't want to use the word simple in the sense that sounds uh, pejorative but very straightforward thoughtful but especially prayerful holy man he wasn't I guess I would say what he wasn't. He wasn't duplicitous. He wasn't divided. And so that's what I mean by simple. Uh, he wasn't divided. And um, and just great sense of humor, but kind of a quiet guy and uh, Polish man who embraced life in its fullness. And, and um, so really grew to love him, love Sharon's family, all her family. And his his life and his process of dying were profound he was uh, diagnosed with uh, leukemia and, and initiated treatment and didn't work. So he went home and went home to central Nebraska to their house. And he lived for about another month. And my wife's family is a big family with seven kids and growing number of dozens of grandkids by now. And their house was just transformed into something unbelievable and still yet to be experienced again in my life for it was truly a, t- a holy time. It was prayer. It was scripture reading. It was being together with Mike, who was my father-in-law, but also being together as a family. And the fact that all these grandkids came home and became immersed into the experience of someone loved who was dying was foundational for them. I mean, so that even for them, death was not something weird or distant or it just became part of, okay, this is this is how life goes. This is wonderful, super sad, we're sad for Grandpa Lou, but yeah, hey, let's go outside and play. And so it, it, it didn't become separate. It became in, uh, incorporated, it became um, integrated into the experience of life. And his front door was a revolving door of people coming into, he would be embarrassed to say, but pay homage to him. You know, friends of their kids are coming, hadn't seen him in years, coming in and say, you changed my life. You you said something to me or, or you know, just person after person. It was just like people making a pilgrimage to see this telephone repairman. And his death was holy. It was peaceful. He suffered immensely, but never, never complained about it. He embraced that in, in a truly inspirational way, you know, redemptive suffering truly as it as it could be witnessed. And um, goodness, his, his funeral was so many people, priests, church was full, again, for this telephone repairman, because the world, in the world's eyes, he was a good man. But in the eyes of those who look through the lens of faith, he was so much more than just a good man. And that really, really had a profound impact on me really started to make me think more deeply about what death can look like, the process of dying could look like, and having that desire for myself, for my other family members. But that didn't start with his diagnosis of leukemia, you know? That started when he was a young man who gave his life to the Lord and lived a life of a true desire to follow God's will to the best of his ability and the best of his way to discern it. And so that process began decades before his death. So that desire to die well, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, sure, it can happen on your deathbed, and 
But by and large, that begins now. I mean, because now for me, begins now for, or hopefully began even more than now, but for, for you, Chris, for me, for anybody who happens to listen to this, the preparation for death is, has already begun. And, and I saw that in Mike and, uh, didn't always appreciate it at the time, but, but seeing it through the eyes of his death was like, okay, this is how it ought to be. It's that grace of a holy death, isn't it? And then that experience, it was a real, the way you were describing it, it sounded as though there was a very fluid space between that veil of now and heaven. Yeah, it wasn't scary, right? I mean, it was sad, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't scary that he could be approached, which meant death could be approached in a way that wasn't scary. I think that's the the scary thing in the beauty of what was experienced by the family is that they were able to see death, death of, a, of their grandfather, death of a person, and they were able to have that experience that will stay with them. For so many of us, we may not have had the experience of seeing death. It's a scary thing, right? I mean, even to this day, our kids talk about, yeah, I remember we were playing restaurant outside at Grand- while Grandpa Lou was inside. So there's this mixture of memories that are so good, the memory of Grandpa Lou dying mixed with the memory of playing with cousins, you know? So there's this association in their minds of of a good thing, not, again, this split reality like, okay, death is scary, hidden over here, not going to look at it and I'll enjoy my life over here, do what I want. It became integrated, it became incorporated, and, and to this day, they they, rem- they remember it with such fondness. Can you imagine that, ha- being able to look back with fondness on someone's process of dying? What a gift that grandfather gave to his descendants. Oh, gosh, yes, and his wife, Marianne, there the whole time, and also just this bastion of faith, and uh, you know they were peanut butter and jelly. They were there together through everything thick and thin. My hope in the course of the conversations that we're going to have about your book, To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life, is that we can begin to pull back a curtain that is really thick and heavy and kind of give people a glimpse of the reality of it all and in the circumstances that we may find ourselves one day, whether it's dealing with something in our own life, or maybe it's dealing with something with a parent or a spouse or even a child and how we can address that. So having done that, it doesn't take away the shock of it, right? Or the concern and sometimes the anxiety, the severe anxiety surrounding it. But it lets you know that there is a light behind that veil that you can go towards. We'll continue this conversation in our next episode. You've been listening to The Final Journey, insights from a Catholic deacon and neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, 
please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran.